Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Be sure to follow Pedagogue on Twitter at underscore pedagogue underscore and Instagram at pedagogue podcast. You can also read transcripts at pedagoguepodcast.com. Again, that's pedagoguepodcast.com. Make sure to rate, review, subscribe, follow along on whatever platform you're listening on. And as always, thanks so much for listening and supporting the podcast. In this episode, I talk with Megan McIntyre about writing program administration, anti-racist pedagogies and practices, supporting linguistically diverse students, digital rhetorics and activism, and making WPA labor more visible. Megan McIntyre is currently an assistant professor and the writing program director at Sonoma State University in California. Sonoma State University is a Hispanic-serving institution and part of the California State University system. Megan also chairs the General Education Committee at SSU and is in her third year as the Four Seas Feminist Caucus co-chair. Megan's research focuses on anti-racist writing programs, post-pedagogy, and social media. You can find some of her recent work in Composition Forum, Academic Labor, Present Tense, and forthcoming in WPA's special issue on Black Lives Matter and anti-racist projects in writing program administration. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start by talking about anti-racist writing programs and anti-racist writing program initiatives. I know you are the director of the writing program at Sonoma State University, so a lot of your time is addressing administrative issues and specifically equity issues and building curriculum and materials that support racially and linguistically diverse students. What institutional and or programmatic barriers did you notice students were facing at Sonoma State? And what kinds of anti-racist measures are you taking as a writing program administrator? The, the p- first part of that question is easier to answer, um, which is when I got to Sonoma State, I um, walked into a campus that's part of the California State University system. And so system-wide, there was a, a big conversation happening when I got here about um, graduation, time to graduation and equity gaps. And so when I walked in, I had um, the benefit of getting some really good data from our campus folks and system level folks that showed that there was a pretty significant GPA gap happening in our our one semester first year writing class. So we have a structure that is meant to support diverse learners. So we have a one semester option and then we have a stretch first year comp option, which takes the same requirements, the same word count, the same project requirements, the same learning outcomes and stretches them across two semesters. And so that was built uh, before I got here, like five years before I got here with equity in mind. At the same time though, we had this persistent equity gap in the one semester. And then over the last three years, we've opened up an equity gap or last five years, an equity gap in the first semester of stretch. So we have these sort of two problems, right? Like one is a problem that is a known one, which is one semester courses with the sort of high number of words that students are asked to write in quick succession can be really problematic when there is a sole emphasis on quote unquote academic writing with no attention to linguistic diversity. And then on the other hand, we had something we we hoped would solve that problem, this this two two semester stretch option. 
um, that was actually creating a different kind of barrier for students. And so I came in with some of this information. I got some more of that information. And that was like the first thing that happened. The other thing that happened was the last last summers and before last before the murder of George Floyd, other high profile police murders uh, of, of black people that caused a reckoning on our campus too, a long overdue reckoning on our campus. Um, we are the least diverse CSU campus. For a long time, we were, uh, in terms of student population, the very whitest. And we were a, sort of a destination campus for, for Southern California white students. And we weren't at all reflective of the diversity in our own community. Sonoma County is um, a majority Hispanic county, depending on how you count um, and who's doing the counting. But we're certainly a more diverse county than our our institution. So all of that to say, <laughs> um, there was there was information and then there was sort of a cultural reckoning around racism nationally that was ha also happening on our campus. And so we started talking, I started talking when I got here about the need to support linguistically diverse students. We started talking about culturally sustaining pedagogy. We started talking about um, April Baker Bell's work before she published the amazing, her amazing book, Linguistic Justice, but her previous work, which also focused on uh, issues of linguistic justice. But we hadn't had a full-on conversation about it on our campus. As you were seeing these equity gaps as AWPA, what were you thinking in terms of action or in what ways did you take action to address these issues? And then maybe you could also talk about how you mentor first-year writing teachers on anti-racist pedagogies and practices. Yes, this is an excellent question. Uh, so what I did and what I would encourage if I had a chance, um, other WPAs to think about are the places where you can have an immediate impact and the places where you can have a long-term impact. So the immediate impact part was changing the way we did graduate teaching associate training. So we have a year-long GTA course plan where they take a, a pedagogy and theory course with me in the spring before they teach. I have optional workshops for thesis development and pedagogy development and writing assignment development over the course of the summer. And then they take a practicum with me their first semester teaching. And so all of that work was then infused with equity-based practices. So in the th theory class, we started by reading Iris Ruiz's work, uh, her book, Reclaiming uh, Composition for Chicanos and Chicanas and Other Ethnic Minorities, which sort of resets the history of composition. We started talking, we started by talking about ethnic studies and the California State University system and how that should impact the way we think about how universities teach students to write or, or conduct writing classes. And then we moved on to the, the amazing work on culturally sustaining pedagogy, critical hip hop pedagogy, um, and other equity-based and asset-based pedagogies. A lot of that work coming out of K-12. So all of that was their sort of theory and pedagogy class before they ever taught. And then we did work, I did workshops over the summer, like I said, that were optional, but we're focused on how do you build a set of course policies that have equity in mind. And then the practicum class was a was largely about um, anti-racist and equity-based assessment. So we spend the first half or more of that practicum semester talking about 
all different kinds of grading, grading contracts, ungrading, equity-based grading, contract grading, like all the ways that you could think about grading differently um, than many, many of us or many of them have ever had. So that's the first thing. I think a lot of us, if you have graduate students that teach in your program, as a WPA, you often have sort of total control or lots of say, at least, in how that training, what that training looks like. So that's the first place I started, and I would encourage other folks to do that. The second thing I did was all of our professional development sessions were focused on equity, on asset-based approaches to teaching writing. We started doing a sort of book group or article reading group, a brown bag lunch approach. And so professional development was about that. And then we looked at our outcomes. And the first thing I did was removed the sentence in our outcomes that was like about standard academic English. So it no longer says in our outcomes that we have to teach students standard academic English. Um, and so it's obviously going to, it is still ongoing work. It's not like deleting that sentence means no one <laughs> focuses on that in their class any longer, but removing the requirement is a big step, right? It, it takes the boundaries off of what faculty think they're allowed to do and opens up conversations about what we can do and what it looks like to have an, an equity-based and asset-based writing program. You have a website full of wonderful resources that can help teachers embrace anti-racist pedagogies and practices. It's MeganMMcIntyre.com. Again, that's MeganMMcIntyre.com. It includes documents on anti-racist teaching resources and steps towards anti-racist teaching. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Last June, when a lot of us were sort of grappling with our own practice um, and um, thinking about how racism manifests in our own program. I think that was a, a, a thing lots of us were thinking about. It was something that in the wake of George Floyd's murder was like pressing on me as a teacher, maybe even more than a writing program director, but, but as a teacher, what am I doing that is furthering this problem and what can I do that's different than that? And so I wrote a letter to the faculty in our program and I said, like, look, this is really tough but it's important, right? Like this is a moment and I, I want us all to take this moment. And so I laid out the seven things that I was doing um, and I, I then posted it to Twitter as I do so many things then to my website. But, but basically laying out like se- here are seven things that I think are possible and practical to actually do in our classrooms right now. And it's some of the stuff that I think lots of folks are talking about creating a more diverse reading list Um, Something I emphasize there and elsewhere, and also when I'm talking um, to the graduate students or talking to faculty in the program, is that diversifying our reading list isn't just making sure that, for example, we have Black authors talking about what it's like to be Black. Um, It's it's much, much more than that. So it's also about when we define literacy, do we have an inclusive definition of literacy? Um, So do we teach James Baldwin's definitions of literacy alongside what we, what are sort of more white stream (laughs) definitions of what literacy looks like? I think those things reassessing how we do assessment, but, but also things that I think are tough personally or awkward personally, but really easy to implement, like acknowledging that systemic racism is real, saying it out loud to our students, acknowledging that academic writing comes 
from a place of oppression. I think Geneva Smitherman has written so extensively and beautifully and compellingly on this point that that our sense of what academic writing is, is actually based on white ways of speaking, white ways of knowing. And the way it has become so powerful is that that whiteness has become invisible, or she says it's become inaudible. Um, and so it's no longer marked by a racial um, correlation, but it is, it's, it's correlated to whiteness. And so acknowledging that fact in our classrooms is also a big step um, to supporting our students that come from, you know, linguistically diverse backgrounds. And then I think the other thing is, is about being compassionate, empathetic, and caring in your pedagogy and your relationship with students. And so I talk about treating students as whole people um, and how that can translate into policies. I um, posted on Twitter a, a few weeks ago, basically that my one weird trick for my life getting better is that I, I accept all late work and I, I grant all extensions. And that seemed to resonate with folks, but I, I think that that's true. It's it's recognizing that people's lives are really complicated. Our first year students come from a really wide range of backgrounds and circumstances. And so without requiring gutting self-exposure and disclosure, we can treat them as adults and, and whole humans who deserve care um, and a break. I know your research and teaching also focus on digital rhetorics and pedagogy, such as agency and activism through digital tools and networks and social media. What kinds of topics or themes do you explore with students? One of the things that I, I've done in both my first year classes and in, you know, upper division undergrad classes is use, I've used mostly Twitter because it's the place that I feel really comfortable. And my dissertation, I wrote about Twitter. So it's been a sort of long-term love affair here. But asking students to write about communities as they exist online and thinking about how they participate in those. Hashtags are the one feature of Twitter that's sort of been consistent from the beginning of of the platform. And it has been a way to find other folks on Twitter um, in the easiest way possible to create communities on Twitter from the sort of beginning of the site. And so thinking about those as communities is, is I think really key to understanding why Twitter functions the way that it does. I wrote about this in uh, my dissertation, but but I I think like that for good and for ill. And so I, I ask my students, I teach a um, advanced composition class, which is open to all majors. And I get a really wide variety of majors because we have a, a, a senior level writing requirement that only about half the students at the university can actually fulfill in their major. The rest of them have to go find, either take a time test or, or go find another class that fulfills it. And my, my junior level class does. So I'm usually working with like one English major and 14 to 15 other folks. But the whole theme for that class is writing in and community. And so helping, asking students to do explorations, asking students to recognize how visuals operate and asking them to think about how hashtags work. Um, and then separately how Facebook community groups work because there is a different set of relationships there that's a much more fixed relationship than I think hashtags allows. My sense is that thinking about community as a theme in first year writing, offers students opportunities 
to talk about their home communities or to talk about their sort of communities of choice in ways that lend themselves toward linguistically diverse applications. So I think, you know, Twitter is a place where, especially if you were there for the the era of 140 characters, it, language changed, right? Like you had to change the way that you wrote. It, it wasn't just about brevity, but the same writing style. It was literally changes to how we communicate. I think, you know, memes and GIFs exist outside of and predate Twitter, but there was a sort of boom of those things in part because you didn't have the words anymore. So this sort of required a multimodal approach to communication. And so a lot of our students, I think, regardless of the sort of digital native conversation, which which feels like a sort of false binary because there's all sorts of access and equity challenges and problems around imagining that an entire generation of students comes in with a particular set of technical skills. But I think thinking about the linguistic skills they have and the linguistic practices that they're comfortable in, their sort of home places um, lends itself to also talking about places like Twitter that that bring together visual, alternative linguistic. And I have seen social media as a place for students to practice their own literacies that are that are important to them without me having to impose sort of the practices of the academy on them. And that that has been a natural component of asking students to explore their communities as writers and themselves as writers, which are both really important parts of what I'm trying to do in first year writing. For me, first year writing is not a class about teaching students writing skills. It's about getting students to practice and reflect on habits and approaches um, and strategies for communicating. And so we we do things in lots of genres and we do things in lots of spaces so that students have ways of practicing the things that will help them regardless of whether they ever choose to write in an academic setting again. So you've written about the invisible labor of writing program administration and snapshots of hashtag WPA life, invisible labor and writing program administration. You explain how hashtags and Twitter provide opportunities to help make this administrative labor more visible. Do you mind talking more about this work and how WPAs can make their labor more visible to their programs, colleagues, to the field, and to the public? There's this sense in early uh, composition literature of being the lone compositionist. And I think in a lot of places, that's maybe not the model anymore, that having one sort of ret comp person um, in the entire school is less uh, frequent than it used to be. But there are lots of places where there is only one WPA. I am in a place where there's really, at this point now, um, there's a writing center director and she's wonderful and I adore her, but her background's not in writing studies. That's a different set of circumstances for her. She's also not on tenure track. So that's right, like that's makes it more complicated. It's more, more complicated for her and it's more complicated for me to ask her to make herself visible when we're having discussions that implicate both the writing center and the writing program because she's in a much more precarious position than I am. And so I think a lot of WPAs are navigating challenges like that on their own campus. And so I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in that article is translate the work for folks outside of WPA-dom, right? Translate what it means when you get um, a a simple, quote unquote, email that asks you to translate something or 
reapprove something or recertify something. And um, those are the examples I work through in that piece. And I think, you know, I try to lay out both the labor and the sort of political set of decisions that you're trying to make um, on your own. <laughs> and so what I try to do at the end of the piece is offer the community that has meant a lot to me, the hashtag WPA life community, um, which I think I tried to trace the history of it. I think it starts with Brad Dilger from Purdue talking, using the hashtag to talk about his inbox and uh, goes from there. But the visibility is a translation project, I think. Um, it's recognizing that administrative tasks have rhetorical and political and scholarly dimensions. The amount of research I do to sort of present uh, at a meeting about DSP, directed self-placement, is equal to the amount of research I do for a presentation at a national conference. And the stakes, honestly, are a lot higher. Because if I can't persuade the new administrator on my campus or the new liaison from the chancellor's office that this is a really important, that directed self-placement is really important on, to our campus and to our system, that can have really big impacts on equity in the first year program and do real harm to students, right? So the stakes are sometimes for these, these seemingly innocuous administrative tasks, the stakes can be really high. I think for myself, it was at the same time recognizing how the WPA listserv has imploded multiple times um, and is not a space, frankly, I think that a lot of especially you know, tenure track or newer PhD'd um, WPAs feel comfortable. And I don't feel comfortable there. I don't think it's a space for me. Um, it feels much more like a space for nostalgia for folks that are from a generation of PhDs that predate mine. And honestly, often is taken over still by the voices of older white dudes um, and not at all reflective of what WPA jobs look like on a lot of campuses. Certainly not what I hope WPA jobs will start to look like or continue to look like on a lot of campuses. Um, and so having a, a more open space, a, a space paradoxically that's, that is much more public, but feels more supportive and intimate than that listserv space did, um, was really important to me. Both just like, I need other people. We all need other people, I think. Doing our work alone is not my bag and really lonely for me um, and really unproductive for me. But also we need audiences, right? The, the best person to tell me if I am making a persuasive enough argument about something as important as DSP is another WPA because they may have made the same argument um, and they know what worked on their campus. And even if it's totally a different context, that's at least some data, some information about how to make it work online. Thanks, Megan, and thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.